Hi, everybody. Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's episode of Ask Dr. Jessica. I'm your host and pediatrician, Dr. Jessica Hockman. This week is part two with anxiety expert Lynn Lyons. On this episode, Lynn is going to answer common questions I hear from parents about anxiety, including questions about mask removal, commenting issues, and even how parents should disagree around their children. I hope you enjoy, and let's dive right in. I wanted to ask you some questions that I've been hearing a lot from parents, um, especially with regards to the pandemic. The first question that's coming up all the time is kids have been trained now to wear masks. And mm-hmm. um, I think it's it's served as a way to make children feel protected, safer going back to schools. And now uh, schools are relaxing those restrictions. Mm-hmm. And parents are telling me that kids are, one, feeling nervous about that. They, they are worried they're going to get sick. And they're also worried they're going to um, a parent was telling me today that their child's worried about taking the mask off because they don't want to hurt other people. Mm-hmm. So yeah. do you have any advice for families in this situation on how, how to think about the mask coming off and should they? Yeah. And, and the other thing too, that's interesting I'm hearing is that kids, if, if you've got kids that have had masks on for the larger part of two years, right? they've gotten really used to also hiding behind their masks. So there's yes. the, there's the, the health concern, the worry about the virus. Yes. But there's also, I, I mean, I, I was talking to a, a middle schooler about this the other day. She said, um, I can chew gum if I keep my mask on, which I thought was pretty interesting. She said, I can yawn and nobody knows that I'm bored. Right. She said, I can hide behind my mask and do a lot of things that people can't see. Completely agree. I have, especially with the teenagers, Mm -hmm. um, a lot of teens have told me they like hiding their acne. Yes. Um, They like hiding their braces. Mm -hmm. They Mm -hmm. like that they can feel a little more anonymous, you know, Mm -hmm. in those, in that awkward high school setting. So I definitely hear the same things. Yeah. And I can totally relate. Like I, you know, I live, I live in a, I live in the capital of New Hampshire, but it's a small city and I've lived here for a long time and I've, treated everybody. So going to the grocery store with my mask and my sunglasses on, I was like, I'm going to do this forever. Nobody can recognize me. So I totally get that feeling of of this nice anonymity and all of the social things, like you say. So I, I think as usual, it's about talking them to, to them directly about it and saying, isn't it interesting that we had this opportunity to hide. I, I often ask kids, I want to get out of the specific content and sort of broaden it. So I say, can you think of other examples where people have sort of worn things throughout history that have been sort of a way to hide or has helped them feel anonymous? And, you know, we talk, we could, we could talk about, um, uh, you know, people wearing hats and, and before the pandemic, people would, kids would put their hoodies on and pull their hoodies over their face. And so there is this inclination. There's this natural feeling to sort of be anonymous, um, and to, and to hide a little bit. Um, so for families, it's really just being open about the fact that it was a, a transition into the masks. And now we're making a transition out of them and it's going to feel weird. You know, you get out of your car and you're walking into the grocery store and you think, oh, wait, oh, oh no, I don't have to wear my mask anymore. It just feels strange. Right. And to really just normalize it um, and maybe talk to them too about what they can discover about not wearing a mask 
that there are people that they have been in school with and they've never seen their whole face and how that's kind of interesting and right. kind of weird. I use the word weird a lot. And sometimes people say like, you shouldn't, you shouldn't tell kids that that's weird. I go, no, I like the word weird. It feels weird to unmask yourself after two years. So that's the one thing, the whole social part of it, which is interesting. The, the fear of contaminating somebody, the fear of getting somebody sick, that to me goes back to really helping kids assess reasonable risk. Yes. So, and, and if I'm, if I'm listing my skills in terms of anxiety and what I want to teach families, the ability to assess reasonable risk is a really helpful skill for, for families to have. This is just another opportunity to teach it. And so there are times, yeah, yeah. And, and what we saw, what I'm sure you saw, what I saw is that people who had a very low tolerance for any risk were going to do everything possible to eliminate risk. And now we've, we've got to get back into that place of being able to tolerate risk. Right. Yeah. Right. No, anxious people don't like risks. Yeah. (laughs) I, I agree with that. I think that's, and I, and I'm very compassionate to that perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, and I agree. I think why I'm able personally to be okay with my kids on having masks on is that I do, I follow risk really, mm-hmm. really carefully. And I can see that the risk for kids um, appears very low, thankfully. Mm-hmm. And yeah. so I feel comfortable. Yeah. Yeah. And you can talk to kids about being able to to assess different levels of risk. And again, right. I, I use a ton of metaphors and analogies because one yes. of the one of the tricks of the trade is that when you're talking to somebody about their f- specific problem, they get really, really sort of stuck in the content of their problem. Yes. And if you can use an analogy or a metaphor, they can see. So you ask them to think of other examples in which you have to figure out what's risky and what's not risky. And sometimes it's based on the age. And wasn't it interesting that that at, during the pandemic, we really had to be careful with our older relatives, Yes, right? We had to be so careful with that. And you could think, so that's sort of different when if you had somebody who was older, who was going to the beach, we wouldn't watch them every minute because an older person knows how to deal with the beach. But if you had a three-year-old, you better pay attention, right? right? So you help them figure out how we assess risk based on all sorts of different factors, and let them, because we want to promote that fex, that flexible thinking, that problem-solving thinking, which no, I again, think it's, it's hard yeah. for us to recognize that living life comes with risks. Mm-hmm. I wish it didn't, but that's just the reality of living. Yeah, right. And that's why we, when we try and take away risk, remember, anxiety wants certainty. So how do we, how do we live our lives in a way that eliminates all risk? You don't have much of a life at all. Your world right. gets pretty small. Right. Yeah. I always give the example of somebody says to me like, well, I'm really scared to fly. So we're all going to drive to Orlando. I'm like, "Mm, gosh, that is a bad risk assessment, right? You're going to drive from New Hampshire to Orlando on 95 versus getting in a plane and flying. So oftentimes I will try your approach and give the the stats. But if somebody's really anxious about something, rational thinking is not getting factored in. Of course. No, it makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I part, I partly blame this, or I don't know if blame is the right word, but I do think the media makes a big difference, right? Mm-hmm. Because if you're watching the news mm-hmm. and the pandemic's the only thing we're we're hearing about, of course, that's mm-hmm. going to be where uh, naturally our our anxiety will be drawn yeah. towards. Yeah, 
I teach families to listen for catastrophic language and make it kind of a game. Right. So catastrophic language where they'll take something and just talk about it with these big terms and these big scary terms. And if you if you have families start to listen to it and you make it kind of a game, it really defangs it. So we we have there's That's a advice. there's a yeah, there's a there's a weatherman. I'm sure there are you know, around, but there's a meteorologist in New Hampshire who is really catastrophic. So when he's giving the forecast on the local news, it's kind of funny because he's really, I mean, and he, he clearly loves a big catastrophe. If there's a blizzard coming, this guy is in his element, but he uses these big catastrophic words. And so right. when you listen to it, so we just laugh about it rather than saying like, oh my gosh, you know, like Mike, Mike says we're all going to be buried alive. You know, <laughs> right, we, right. we're like, oh, there goes Mike again. Yeah. You could do that with you could do that with family members too, right? So you might have somebody in your family that tends to be more catastrophic, or the family in together is catastrophic, and you begin to pay attention to that language. We just want to diffuse the power of it. That's what we want to do. Absolutely. Yeah. No, I I think about it. If if every time a kid was in a car accident um, and it was you know on the news and catastrophized, we would all be so scared to drive. Mm-hmm. Thankfully, they mm-hmm. it, you know that doesn't happen so much. Yeah, I think that's analogous in a lot of ways to COVID. Yeah. And that goes back to sort of what we were talking about with the technology. This is, that's another way that the technology has really increased parental anxieties because you hear about everything. So back in the old days, if a boy drowned in Idaho, you didn't hear about the boy drowning in Idaho. And now you hear about, we we do hear a lot about bad things that happen to kids. This is what happened with the, you know, with the milk cart. That faces on the milk carton. You know, there's interesting research about how that all came to be. And the rates of stranger abduction have really not increased in this country since the 70s. No, isn't that but amazing? It, yeah, yeah. And it's it's very unlikely to happen. It's extremely unlikely to happen. Of course, when it happens, it's awful. But when right. awful things happen, it's awful. It's just that we and and it was just sort of starting you know, when we were kids, it was just starting this milk carton thing. Think about, you know, when we were little, we you, you had the cereal box in front of you and you like read the back of the cereal boxes. And then now on the back of the milk carton, we've just got all these pictures of kids that are missing. And it just, oh my gosh, it just made everybody so anxious. Yeah. It's so unfair to our emotions. <laughs> it is. <laughs> it's such yeah. a cool trick. It is a cruel trick because our little primitive amygdala hasn't hasn't really adapted to this modern world. So the poor amygdala just gets a message right. that we're being we're being chased by a grizzly bear, and the poor amygdala can't say like, "Oh, please, right? This is ridiculous." The amygdala doesn't say it's just the catastrophic weatherman. Once the amygdala gets the message that it's dangerous, the the amygdala does what the amygdala does. Right. And so that poor little that poor little structure back there that's trying so hard to keep us safe is just getting bombarded with information all the time. Yeah, right, it's just you, too much. It's too much, right? It's yeah. good every once in a while. Yep. I think it's a healthy yeah. response every once in a while. But That's not, right. Not a way to live all the time. That's right. Yeah, we, we're not going to get rid of worry. We don't want to get rid of worry. Right. Because it is, there are times when it really is important to slow down and pay attention and to do things that keep you safe and all that jazz. It's just that it's just constant, 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 constant. Yeah. Now, yep. question for you as an anxiety specialist. You talked yeah. about um, teenagers and, um, you know, all the electronics. Mm-hmm. When parents ask you about your perspective on cell phones and kids or technology <laughs> and kids, what, what, I know what advice I give. What, I'm curious, what do you say to parents? I say wait as long as possible. So yes. I say, you know, I, I really don't think a fourth grader needs a smartphone. 
um, I have, I, I realistically say these things aren't going away. And so you can give your kids ways to communicate with you, but they don't have to have access to all of social media and that kind of stuff. So I really am like, wait, 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 wait. Um, I, I say if you can wait until seventh or eighth grade, that would be awesome and not give your kids a phone. Um, and then once they have a phone, you really want to be very diligent about what they're looking at and what they're getting access to because it's all right there in the palm of their hand. Um, and then the other thing that I am really adamant about is you should not let your kids have their phones in the bedroom. And that should go, that should be a habit. We should all have that habit. Um, phones in the bedroom at night. We know that kids stay up. They're on their phones. I was talking to a girl the other day. She says, I just couldn't sleep all night. And I said, how, how did that go? She goes, well, I mean, I got into bed at like 1030 and then I was just like tossing and turning until like 11. And then I just didn't sleep all night. I said, well, what did you do from 11 to whenever? She goes, I was just like on my phone all night. I said, so you weren't trying to fall asleep. That would be like me saying to you, this is what I said to her. That would be like me saying to you, I did not sleep all night. I went outside and I ran around my house all night and I could not fall asleep. <laughs> You're doing something that's completely incompatible with falling asleep. Um, so I am, I really say to parents, you know, you can limit this. And I wonder if, if you experience this too, working with parents. It seems that the most responsible parents, parents that are really good at setting limits and boundaries and all sorts of things, seem to sort of lose their minds when it comes to setting limits about phones. Like as if, as if they lose the ability to say no, that if they yes. say no to their kids, you know, I, I, they'll, I had this, this parent come in once and said, well, we weren't going to give her a phone. I think she was 10. We weren't going to give her a phone. She's out in the waiting room. We weren't going to give her a phone. And then my mother-in-law went behind our backs and got her a phone. And now we, we just like, we, we do not know what to do. I was like, you really don't know what to do? You, <laughs> you take the phone away. What if she gave her a tarantula? Would you be like, now what do we do? Just take away the phone. But it's really hard somehow for parents to set limits with technology, and it's so, so important. Once yeah. it started, they can't go backwards. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I say to parents, you can say, if, you're, if, you, if you've got a fifth grader and the phone is in the bedroom now, maybe you're not going to be able to take away the phone completely. You can say to them, I have made a terrible mistake and I have screwed up and this is not good and I'm, the phone cannot be in the bedroom now. And they'll be like, but then they'll be so mad. Yeah, they'll be so mad. <laughs> no, and yeah. I've, I've read that 90% of Americans sleep with their phone at arm's, at arm's distance. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And yeah. it's such a striking change from 20 years ago, right? I mean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so um. Yeah, and and I and I don't know what the statistic is, but it's probably similar of of what percentage of people the first thing they do when they wake up is look at their phone, and not just to turn off the alarm, but like they look at Twitter or something. It's sort of like the 1960s equivalent of lighting up a cigarette before you even get out of bed. Right. Yeah. <laughs> no, and, and I do I do think I don't I, I'm curious what you think, but I do think it contributes to anxiety for a lot of teens and even oh, adults. Oh, absolutely. Yep. Um, yep. Yeah. Yeah, there's some really good, there's some really good research, um, on that, that, you know, it keeps coming out over and over again. Jean Twenge, um, who wrote, she writes books on generation. So she wrote a book called Generation Me, but she does a lot of research on the trends in generations. And she said in an article she wrote in the Atlantic a few years ago, there is a really straight line 
between the amount of time that kids spend on screens and the likelihood that they are going to be anxious and depressed. Wow. And she she said in the article, there are no exceptions. So there's always the issue between, well, is it correlation or causality? But the amount of time that a kid is looking at a screen, that a kid is on social media, and in particular, passively on social media. So that makes a difference with parents, I mean, um, with kids and adults, is that if you're on social media, but you're doing it in a way in which you are actively engaged in supporting a cause or helping other people or whatever, you do better. But if you are passively on social media, then the likelihood of that increasing your anxiety and increasing your depression is pretty profound. That makes sense. Like you're just looking at what other people are doing, the fun they're having, and you're not partaking. I could see that. Yeah. Social comparison theory says when you compare yourself to somebody else, you generally compare down. So when we were kids, you know, I got left out of a lot of things but I wasn't then watching everybody do the thing that I got left out of. Right. I, right? I, I like I knew, agree. Yeah. I knew I didn't get invited to the party, but then I wasn't like watching the party, sad <laughs> so in my terrible. bedroom. Right. 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 It's terrible. Yeah. It's so, so hard. That's I mean, such I really, a good point. I'm thinking about parties that I, I clearly remember not being invited to and being sad mm-hmm. about it and just making other plans. Mm-hmm. But if I was watching the party, that would feel terrible. Terrible. Yeah. Yes. Look at how much fun they're having. Look at what they're doing. <laughs> look at here are my three best friends like, eh, you know, taking selfies and I'm right. home with my mom playing Yahtzee, right? right. Terrible. Terrible, right. terrible. And you're yeah. probably having more fun with your mom playing Yahtzee all day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe. Maybe. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so, and then uh, I did get a few, I reached out to some parents telling them that I was going to be talking to you. Mm-hmm. And I did get a few other questions that I, if it's okay, I wanted to, sure. to buy you. I could hear you sure. talk forever, by the way. I love, I love your advice. Um, it's true. Um, oh, my okay. kids say the same thing. No, just kidding, <laughs> yeah. so they'll come back around. They'll come back yeah, around. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, okay. So I had a parent ask me, she said, you know, they're spending more time home. She and her husband are home more because they're mm-hmm. working from home and they've been bickering around the kids. And, uh, one parent feels like it's okay for the kids to see them, f- you know, uh, fight in front of the children, that it's healthy for kids to see what fighting looks like. And the other parent feels really uncomfortable about it and doesn't want to fight in front of the kids. Mm-hmm. Do you have, uh, thoughts on that, you know, on that situation? Yeah. So, There's a few factors. One is that what is the content of the fight? So exposing kids to fighting material, so to speak, that is above their pay grade, you know, so if they're fighting about things that are really going to impact their lives, if they're bickering about who is going to call the man to fix the furnace. That's one thing. But if they're bickering about whether or not they should stay married or they're bickering about whether or not grandma's going to stop drinking, that, that's, that's difficult. Yes. But so in the, let, let's just set aside fights that parents are having that are, the, the content is really too much for kids to handle. That shouldn't happen. But the normal argument that happens if you're in a marriage, the key to it is kids seeing you resolve it. So they've actually done research where there are families where a a, a child will say, or a grown child will say, I never saw my parents have an argument. I never saw them have an argument. You think, oh, isn't that fantastic? Well, maybe, maybe not. If they see parents having conflict in, in reasonable ways, right? They're not throwing vases at each other. And then they see the parents work through it. 
and they see the parents talk about it or the, the, they even say to the kids, we got to go and have a discussion. We'll get back to you. And they go and have a discussion. And then the, the kids see the parents be okay. That's really healthy. That's really healthy. And yeah. that's real life, I think. That's um, real life. When you get to know people well enough, it's inevitable you're going to have conflict. Mm-hmm. And so yep. I think what a great skill for kids to see resolution. Yep. Yeah. So, and, and when we talk about some really great social skills for, for kids to have, relationship repair is one of the huge ones. And so, especially if you've got like middle schoolers right now, because they, they really have big, you know, friendship problems. Yes. Relationship repair is something that's really helpful to model. So if, if parents, if there are parents who never ever fight, well, good on you because I don't do that, but, um, but it really is okay. The, the constant bickering, if the bickering is constant and they're just sort of at each other all the time, then that's something you want to pay attention to. Um, one of the things that, um, so marriage couple researchers, um, and the Gottmans are two, um, Julie and John Gottman that really look at marriages and relationships. One of the things they can do and they can, they can predict with over 90% accuracy whether or not a marriage will survive after watching it a very short interaction. And it's based on contempt. Oh. So, so, mm-hmm. so contempt is a really corrosive, um, emotion to have in relationships. So if the parents are bickering and it's sort of, um, you know, disrespectful and contemptuous, that needs to be addressed because you're going down the wrong path and you're teaching your children and you're probably going to show your kids how to have a bad relationship. But contempt is something you really want to pay attention to. I can yeah. see that. It's uncomfortable to be around. You know, if I'm around a couple oh. that, where you see that contempt for one another. Mm-hmm. I know. And you can pick no it up fun. right away. Yeah. You're like, oh God, this is terrible. Yeah. Right. They're, right. they're snide remarks and they put each other down and, oh, yeah. Another question. A lot of kids have, and this happens all the time, but I do think maybe with the pandemic, maybe there's been some more um, where parents have brought it up more, but kids that have nightmares, how should mm-hmm. parents help children that have nightmares? I, I had one parent that um, started sleeping next to their child and now they can't uh, get away from that habit. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> what's, what's a healthy way to approach nightmares? Um, yeah. So sleeping next to your child is usually doesn't go well. Um, so nightmares are normal, right? It's normal for kids to have nightmares. Um, you, you know, if they're having nightmares every night, that's something different. If they've gone through something and they're having a recurrent nightmare. Um, one of the things that's interesting with little kids, when they wake up in the night, Oftentimes, little kids don't really remember nightmares and can't really articulate nightmares. And there's some even research that says that little kids are not really having nightmares, but they wake up and then they get scared. And so they come running into your bedroom. And the way to the, the, the shorthand to I'm going to get in bed with you is I had a bad dream. So they learn that. So they wake up, they kind of freak out. I had a bad dream. Um, but if you have a kid that's having a lot of nightmares, there's some interesting things you can do. One thing is before they go to bed, if it's a recurrent nightmare, if there's a theme, you can walk them through the nightmare and tell a story where they change the ending of the nightmare. 
And we do that with kids all the time. And it really works. So say you've got this, this little person who says, I keep having a dream that somebody comes in and steals me. So then, okay, so let's go through it. And so you're lying, you're dreaming, and then the person comes in the room. And then how can we change the ending of the movie, uh, of the dream of the movie? Generally not in a violent way. Like, so I took out a knife and I cut their, I, I decapitated them. We don't want to say that. But you say the person comes in and then you said, oh my gosh, oh, it's the mailman. And he is delivering the mail and he got confused between the night and the morning. And so we have to say, Mr. Mailman, you're coming in my room to deliver the mail. You got to wait until eight o'clock. And so you can play with it in that way. Storytelling and being imaginative with that. Now, of course, that's not going to work with a 16-year-old. So, but you can, even with an older kid, with a teenager, you can have them do that. So, so just spend some time before you go to sleep, sort of going through the dream and then changing the ending in however way you want to change it. Run through that in your head a few times and then see what happens. But you shouldn't freak out if your kid is having nightmares every once in a while. That's just a normal thing. Yes. Um, and so we want to normalize that. If it's recurrent, try that and see what happens because it generally does pretty good things. Yeah. I think that's wonderful. And, and I'll I'll tell my kids... When they have nightmares, I'll tell them to picture their favorite place to be. Like, we'll play mm -hmm. it out before bed. Mm -hmm. Oh, you really like going to the beach. Okay, well, let's have that. You're in control of your of your dream, believe mm -hmm. it or not. Mm -hmm. And why don't, let's think about how it would look if we ended up at the beach at the end of the nightmare. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Just, just yeah. like what you're saying. Yep, exactly. You're in control. That's right. And I think the thing we have to remember with kids is that they're very suggestible. And so the language that we use about it the way we talk about it is really, really great. So if you, you just saying to your kids, you know, you're in control of your dream. They're like, oh, well, that's an interesting concept. And so when you, when you start giving kids that language and start talking about it in that way, instead of saying like, oh my God, what does this nightmare mean? Why are you having this nightmare? Oh, right. There's that catastrophic language. Um, so, so being able to play around with kids' imaginations and tell stories. And there are kids I've had that have sleep difficulties and I record things. We, we tell a story, I'll, I'll record it. Um, and then they listen to it at night before they go to bed so that it helps them go through a different scenario. Really, we just have to take advantage of kids' imaginations because, you know, they're a blessing and a curse, right? Our imagination is what gets worry going. But if, but if we can start talking about using it in a positive way, then it's really pretty cool. Yeah, absolutely. Um, no, you're so lovely to listen to. Um, I think my oh, big takeaway, <laughs> you are. No, I think, I think it's really a lot of food for thought, just the role that we as parents can play influencing our kids for the better. Our words are really powerful. And language is really powerful. And our reactions are so powerful. And they're watching us all the time. Yeah. I always say little that's, kids with big ears. That's right. That's why I do that thing where I do, um, uh, you know, like if I, if I, when my kids were little, they're not little anymore. Um, if I wanted them to hear something, I would do like the stage whisper to my husband. Cause if I said like, you know what? You did such a great job today being nice to your brother. I'm so, I'm so glad how you guys got along. Okay. So they're hearing like, Oh, thanks mom. But if they were playing Legos and I went in the other room and I was talking to my husband about it in a way that I pretended I didn't want them to hear. 
oh my gosh, right? They just, I w- then I would walk into the room and they'd be like smiling. You know, I'd be like, oh, you wouldn't believe. Like, I didn't want to tell them this, but I mean, I was like totally, totally impressed by the way they dealt with each other today. It was just fantastic. I wish you could have seen it. And then they're like, mm-hmm, aren't we great? Yeah, I d- used to do that all the time. It's a, That's a great <laughs> tip. I think we, we all like knowing secrets, right? Yeah. Oh, they love secrets. Yeah. As soon as you drop your voice, I mean, my my... Family says that I'm nosy. I prefer the term curious. Um, but when I was little, if my parents dropped their voice, that was something I wanted to hear, right? Oh, they were, yes. they, that's when they were talking about the good stuff. So you, yes. can, you can manipulate that a little bit with your kids. We yeah. all like to eavesdrop, whether, whether we admit it or not. <laughs> I know. I know. Some of us more than others, apparently. Yeah. That's true. That's true. Well, yeah. I, I want to tell you, I, I heard about you because one of my patients, um, just adores you, adores your podcast. You've made a true difference in her life. And so she turned me on to your podcast. And so I really, really appreciate all the advice and all the difference you've made for so many. Oh, Um, thank you. Thank you. Yeah. We have fun doing it. I hope that comes across. You know what? Honestly, that's, that's what I really pick up on about you is that you, you talk about it in a very light way. Yeah. And I think, I think when we, if we could all lighten things a little bit in our lives, it it would Mm -hmm. make things a lot better. Yeah. There is a, Thank you. There's a, a family therapist. He's he's no longer alive, but Jay Haley. He was just like a seminal figure in in family therapy, and he one of his quotes was that we can address the serious problems of our clients, recognizing that they're serious, but in the spirit of play. And I think that really resonated me when I was new to this and figuring out how I was going to use my personality. Um, it, it was wonderful that Jay Haley gave me permission to to put humor in play and connection because I think that humor is so connecting. I just think we have to make sure that we do that with our kids. It's it's yeah. uh, very beautifully said. I, I really appreciate your perspective and I'm so appreciative of your time. Thank you oh, so, so much. Oh, it was much. my pleasure. I'm so thank glad you, that we you. got to do this. Yeah. No, thank you. Tell us about your courses or how people can find you if they want to learn more and sure. get more tips from you. Sure. So um, my website is just lynnlyons.com. And there's all sorts of videos on there. There's a talk. Um, my Mr. Rogers, I love Mr. Rogers, grew up with Mr. Rogers. So there's a Mr. Rogers talk on there that everybody can access. My Facebook page, if you just go, there's a Fluster Clucks Facebook page. And then there's also mine, which is just, you just put in Lynn Lyons psychotherapist or Lynn Lyons anxiety or both. So there's all sorts of resources there. I've done um, a bunch of webinars. There's a, a course for parents to to watch in terms of managing anxiety in, in their kids. Yeah, so there's just a lot of resources there. And you have um, a new book coming out. I do. I have a new book. Um, so we are recording this. Okay, so in seven days, I hand in the manuscript. Um, can you hear the excitement in my voice? <laughs> yes. um, if anybody wants to write a book, just call me and I'll talk you out of it. Um, so... <laughs> This is my fourth one. I didn't think I'd write another one, but I did. Yeah, The Anxiety Audit, it's called. It's for adults. This is the first book I've written um, focused on adults. The Seven Sneaky Ways That Anxiety Grabs Hold and How to Escape Them. So it's really just after these few years we've been through, really recognizing how worry and anxiety show up and get a hold of us. Um, so yeah, it'll come out in October. I got to hand it in, hand it in next week, and then it'll be out in October. Yeah. And then I swear I won't write another book, but who knows, maybe that'll change. (laughs) And I love your first book. I don't know if it's your first book, but Anxious Kid, Anxious Parents. Yeah, that was it. That was our first book. Yep. 
And then there's Playing With Anxiety. That's like the tweener book that goes with it. And then I wrote a, I wrote a, a professional text after that. Um, uh, yeah. So yeah. Well, I can tell you what a difference you're making in so many lives. Oh, thank thanks. You. Thanks. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. You are too. You are too. Yeah. We just keep getting that message out there. Thank you so much for listening. If you are enjoying this podcast and want to be notified whenever there's a new episode, please be sure and subscribe to Ask Dr. Jessica. Also, I would be so appreciative if you would share this podcast and consider leaving a five-star review. Your support is what helps this podcast grow.